0: Every day I wake up, I go throughout the day, and I, I say four words throughout the day. And uh, it starts in the morning. The first word I say out loud kind of comes in the morning. I wake up, I reach for my phone that's on the nightstand, it's been charging all night. I, I point it to my face, we've got, the, we've got the ability to have face ID, it recognizes me, and I go into an app that is connected with my savings, And, and every morning I wake up, the first thing on my heart that I say, the first word that I say is savings. My savings. Is it still safe? You know, and I look at it, and I, I click on it, and I just look at it and I say, grow little guy, grow, grow little guy. And what's interesting is the older I get, the more commas I get in my bank account. And it's really just a sweet thing between me and my savings. And uh, so I say savings, and then I go downstairs and I uh, I start the cure egg. I start the cure egg, and I uh, I kiss my my daughter. I kiss my son. I kiss my other son. I kiss my other son. I kiss my other daughter, and I kiss my other son. And I I grab all six of my kids around the cure egg, and it's time for my second word of the day: safety. Keep them safe, Lord. Then I get in my car and I commute to my unattached garage and I uh, say my third word of the day on my way to work. Resume. Make me famous. Make my boss appreciate me. Make my fellow coworkers proud of me. Make me impress people. Resume. I come home. I take off my shoes. I put on my Adidas fl- uh, sliders. I walk in the front door and I say my fourth word of the day. Relax. Those four words, savings, safety, resume, relax, is what the vast majority of every Christ follower you know revolves their life around. The vast majority of people we know are living their life around those four words. Everything they do, everything they think about, every desire, every free time, every agenda, everything they do, their default is into saving, safety, resume, relax. Saving, safety, resume, relax. And God says, I want to invite you into my global, eternal, unfulfilled purpose. And as a Christ follower, I respond by saying, (laughs) does it affect those? four words? And God says, yes, it's going to affect how you live, how you give, and how you raise your kids. And then I say, well, please have me excused because I love these four words. See, the world invites you into picking your purpose, but God invites us into living a purposeful global Christian life in the sphere of influence we're in, whether that's the marketplace or our home. God invites us to live a global Christian life in the marketplace or our sphere of influence. But the world wants you to pick your own purpose, to wrap it around yourself, to say it's about you. To have an impact in how you live and how you give and how you raise your kids, we have to let God pick our purpose. Listen to Matthew chapter 6. We see this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first his purpose for your life and all these things. What are the these things? It's everything your friends want but can't grasp. All these things they're chasing for. What are the these things? It's security. It's peace. It's value. It's affirmation. It's identity. It's confidence. It's meaning. God says, if you let me pick your purpose, all these things are gonna be yours, but the world will pull you towards its own purpose. To make an impact in the marketplace globally or your sphere of influence, you have to understand three things. You have to know God's purpose, you have to know the harvest, and you have to know your role. That's how you do it. If you wanna make a huge impact in your sphere of influence, you've gotta know your purpose. You've got to know the harvest and you've got to know your role, know your purpose, know the harvest and know your role. Genesis 11 and 12 is a great contrast between the world's purpose for you and God's purpose he has for you. Listen to Genesis 11. The world wants you to pick your own purpose. And it says this, Genesis chapter 11, humanity says, come, let us make ourselves great. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. So that we may make a name for ourselves. Genesis 11 invites you into a small, self-absorbed, meaningless purpose that's about your safety, security, resume, and relaxation. And look at how Genesis 11, the world's purpose ends. The Lord comes and he judges. He scatters. He scatters them from there and they stop building the city. Genesis 11, the world wants to invite you into a small self-absorbed purpose. But if you flip the page, the next page in Genesis 12, you see God's purpose he has for you. And simply put, this is God's purpose he has for you. He wants to bless you, not for you. He wants to bless you that you could bless the world. That's God's purpose, simply put, and you see it from Genesis 12 all the way to Revelation. Listen to Genesis 12. Contrast this with the Genesis 11 making your name great on your own. God says, man, if you let me pick your purpose, I'm going to bless you to bless the world. Abram, leave, leave your country, your people, your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I want to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, but it's not for you. It's so that all nations or all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, let me pick your purpose and I'm going to bless you to bless the nations. Don't live for the Genesis 11 small self-absorbed purpose. Let God pick your purpose to say, God, I want you to bless me to bless the nations. Why does God give you influence and affluence in your zip code. It's not to make your name great, Genesis 11. It's to reflect him among those who don't know him. That's why. So we got neighbors. Uh, we got new neighbors recently. I was having coffee in my office and I have a great view of my neighbors. And uh, I saw a U-Haul truck pull up. And so, you know, I was like, man, I should go meet my neighbors. That's the Jesus thing to do. So I walk out, and I, I he, 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 his name's Larry. His wife's name's Gigi. And Larry's like, hey, great timing. Will you help me unload the treadmill? And I was like, okay, sure. So I unload the treadmill. We start talking, and I invite Larry to church. And Larry's like, man, no thanks. I'm not interested in this. And my, my office window sees their mailbox, and my mailbox and his mailbox are friends. And so I'm like, this is going to be great. Like, I'll check my mail when he checks his mail. So I would have these mailbox conversations with Larry. And, you know, I'm like, Larry, it's Easter. You could come to church. You know, everybody comes to church on Easter. He's like, Todd, I'm not interested. He kept telling me, and I was like, eventually I was like, now, Larry, you know, he's in his 60s, 70s. I was like, hey, you're no spring chicken. You got to figure this out. You know, you need to figure this out. He's like, oh, Todd, be quiet. And so eventually, um, one day, I got a knock on the door, and uh, it was Gigi, and she had tears in her eyes. And she said, Todd, uh, my uh, Larry's been diagnosed with esophageal cancer, and he's been given 18 months to live. And so, I mean, I, I my anxiety starts to crawl up my arm. I mean, I still, my heart starts pounding. I grab my Bible. I go across the street. I don't even know what to do. He's sitting at his kitchen table reading a golf magazine. I sit down, I open my Bible, I start talking about Jesus, and he says, Todd, no thanks. I'm not interested. And we talked about Tiger Woods. And then I walked across the street. And I noticed Larry's trips to the mailboxes got fewer and fewer. And I began to see Larry less and less until one day Gigi knocked on my door. And she said, Todd, I'm really scared. Larry has two hours to live. I mean, I'm not a pastor. I don't know what to do. I grabbed my Bible. I ran across the street. I didn't even know what I was going to experience. I go in the front door. I go down the hallway. I take a left into the master bedroom. Larry's laying there. I'm like, I think he's 92 pounds. He's wearing a diaper. He's spitting in a cup. And I get down on my knee and I open the Bible and I start sharing the gospel with Larry. Larry. And I notice as I'm sharing with him, I'm looking at Larry, but he keeps doing this. And it's confusing because I can't see what he sees behind me. I can't see what he's looking at. And all I see him doing is this. And so I turn. I'm like, what is distracting him? I turn and I notice that Larry is watching TV. And I said, Larry, you're going to stand before Jesus in two hours and you're watching Storage Wars? He says, just leave, Todd, just leave. I walk down the hall. This way I'm a little bit more coherent. I walk down the hall. I see in the hallway an amp, a keyboard, an electric guitar. But what I noticed is on top of them, they had price tags. I go out to Gigi in the living room. I said, thank you, Gigi. You know, I'm praying for you guys. And I said, Gigi, by the way, what's all the amps? Keyboards and guitars with price tags on them. Oh, well, before Larry dies, he wanted to itemize everything in the house so that when he dies, I can sell it for the maximum value. And as I walked across the street, I thought, wow, Larry itemized everything except his own life. See, when you choose the Genesis 11 small purpose that has to do with a comma in your bank account, or only safety, or relaxation, or retirement. It's empty. And be careful because your own kids are going to pick up on your purpose and make it their own. And be careful because your grandkids are going to pick up on your purpose and make it their own. But God invites us into this eternal, global, and unfulfilled purpose. Paul the Apostle, who who wrote 13 books of our New Testament, who planted hundreds of churches across Europe and the Middle East, listen to what he says is his purpose. He doesn't go back to Genesis 11, he goes to Genesis 12. When talking about his purpose, he goes to Genesis 12, Galatians 3:14, He redeemed us. Why? Because what he started in Genesis 12 with Abraham to bless Abraham to bless the nations, he wants to do it with us. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might make its way to all nations. And this affects how you live, and it affects how you give, and it affects how you raise your kids. Your life no longer revolves around your savings, your safety, your resume, your relaxation. It involves his purpose. And he takes you where he wants you to go. He tells you which zip code. He he launches your kids out to to the nation's. God gives us a purpose that is eternal. It's not time bound, it's eternal. God gives us a purpose that is global. It's not just local, it's global. God gives us a purpose that is unfulfilled. The nation still waits. And God gives us a purpose that ends with a guarantee. A guarantee of Revelation 5, 9, that what began with Abraham will come to all nations. Revelation 5, 9, And you, Jesus, were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. But what do we do as Christ followers? We minimize God's purpose. We make it our own purpose. We, we, we say, world, I want to pick your purpose. And we live for commas in our bank account. If you want to have a global impact in the marketplace or in your sphere of influence, the first thing you have to know is you have to know God's purpose for you. That it begins in Genesis 12. The next thing you have to know is you have to know the harvest. You have to know the harvest. What does the world look like? John 3, 16, for God so loves the world. What does that mean? I need to have an open Bible and an open map. I need to understand what the world looks like. But what happens is we're so uninformed of what the world looks like, we don't even know there is a harvest. If, if this Sunday morning we passed out a map of the world, how would you score? If we just said things like, how much money's given to missions? Where is the unreached? How many languages in the world? How many languages are without the Bible? How many Muslims? How many Buddhists? How many Hindus? Where are they located? What percent of missionaries go to the reached areas? What percent go to the unreached? Would you score a zero? Or would you be like, man, I understand God's world because I'm, I, I want to be a worker. To understand God's purpose, you have to know his purpose, but also you have to know the harvest. So wh- what does the world look like? Let's not only open a Bible, let's open a map. What does the map look like? As a Christ follower, God loves the world. I need to have a map in my lap. And what a map shows me when I open it is the most unreached parts of the planet is this area called the 1040 window. It's 10 degrees up from the equator, and it's 40 degrees up, and it stretches across North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. In this box is 3 billion unreached. 3 billion. I mean, think about that. 86%. 86% 86% of every person in this box will be born, will live, and will die, and never shake hands with a Christ follower. 86% of the unreached world lives inside what's called the 1040 window 10 degrees up from the equator, 40 degrees up, and it just. And I had no idea the difference between the reached. And the unreached. I thought the world was made up of the saved and the and the unsaved. I had no idea there was a difference between the reached and the unreached. Let me just explain the difference between the reached and the unreached to you. A reached person is a 25 year old. She lives in Bentonville, Arkansas. She's a third grade teacher. She loves her Lulus, her lattes, but she's really excited about her summers. She's single. She's trying to find Mr. Right and the Mr. Wrong Market. And I mean, she doesn't know Christ. She's not a Christ follower. She doesn't go to church. But if she wanted to go to church, if she wanted to know who Christ is, she could go to embassy suites, get a room, open the drawer and see a Bible in her language. She could talk to a friend who she teaches school with who goes to church and hear the gospel in her language. She could download from Spotify a podcast and hear the gospel in her language. She's not interested in Christ. She's still unsaved, but she's reached. The unreached is different. The unreached is the 25-year-old teacher, not in Bentonville, Arkansas, but in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And if she wants to know who Christ is, she has no access. She will never hold an Arabic Bible. She will never have a friend she teaches with say, come to this Arabic-speaking church and hear the gospel. She has zero access to a podcast in her language that's speaking the gospel. That's the difference between the reached and the unreached. They're both lost, but one has access and one doesn't. Now everything I just tried to summarize over the last few minutes Jesus shares in nine words. Jesus shares what I just tried to share in nine words. And the nine words are found in Luke 10:2. Luke 10:2. He says this, "The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few." The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, and I come to Luke ten two, and I want to spend some time in Luke ten two, and I'm going to ask four questions in Luke ten two. I'm going to say who, why, who, and why. Those are the four questions I want to ask in Luke ten two. I'm going to come to Luke ten two, and all I'm going to do is ask four questions: who, why, who, why. Who, why, who, why? The first question I'm going to ask is, who is the harvest? Who's the harvest? The harvest. The harvest are the lost in both the reached and the unreached areas. The harvest are the lost around me in Northwest Arkansas who have access, but also the unreached who don't. And as a Christ follower, I need to give priority to the lost and the unreached. Who's the harvest? The harvest is both the reached and the unreached. Who, why, who, why? Why are they plentiful? Birth rates alone. The unreached grow 70,000 a day. The unreached grow at 26 million people a year. Why are they plentiful? Because more Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus are having babies and then Christians are discipling people. There are more unreached today than yesterday. Who's the harvest? The reached and the unreached. Why are they plentiful? Oh, they're plentiful. They're great. They're not only great, they're growing. Who's the harvest, the reach, the unreached? Why are they plentiful? Man, birth rates alone, 70,000, 26 million. Who, why, who, why? Who is a worker? Who's a worker? A worker is a Christ follower who's revolving their life around God's purpose, not their small purpose. Who's a worker? A worker is a Christ follower who's revolving their life around God's global purpose. And then the saddest words of Jesus' ministry. Right here. How does he describe the workers? Few. Few? Few? Two out of every eight people breathing claim to be a Christian. This should be the last word used to describe workers. How do you have two out of eight people breathing claim to be Christ's followers, but yet the workers are few? How do you have one missionary for every 250,000 people among the unreached? How is that even possible? How do you have workers that are few? So I brainstormed this topic in my free time at Starbucks. Why are the workers few? I came up with a few examples and reasons in my own mind. Maybe you have your own. Why are they few? I thought, well, I think the first reason the workers are few is we are very distracted. I care more about what time my kids' soccer practice is and setting up the cones than I do the unreached. I'm distracted. I want my life, my safety, my savings. I'm distracted. I've got a mortgage, a truck, an iPhone payment. I mean, you don't even understand. I'm just distracted. I don't have time. I'm different. So I think one of the reasons the workers are for you is we're distracted. I think another reason I thought maybe the workers are for you is because they're uninformed. They're uninformed. 95% of every Christ follower has never heard of the 1040 window. How do I know I'm a worker if I don't even know what work to do? 95% have never even heard of the Great Commission. 95% have never heard of the unreached. 95% have never heard. No wonder they're distracted and they're uninformed. We're distracted. We're underformed. Why are the workers few? The unreached are hard to reach. This isn't going seven days to Jamaica. The unreached are hard to reach. Do you know where the unreached are located? War zones, war zones. Tribes, jungles, famine areas, in places where the government is anti-Christian, not easily accessible. You have to have creative access to get to. Of the 65 countries in the 1040 window, the State Department has issued travel warnings on 23 of them. The harvest. Who's the harvest? The reefs and the unreached. Is plentiful. They're great and they're growing. The workers, Christ followers that have a passion for God's purpose few hard to find you might not even know one i was teaching at a college in new york i had the opportunity to, to teach a, a 3 hour class in new york it's a one week intensive and, and I was there recently and I just shared. The, the class was about 200 people and it was in the, kind of the lecture style audience where the, the seats go to the top. And um, I just threw out the question, "Why are the workers few?" And 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 you know, I just asked the students, "Why are the workers few?" And hands started popping up, popping up all over the place. Oh, I don't want to die single. Oh, I don't want to raise support. Oh, I don't know if I'm called or not. Oh, I'm just distracted. Oh, I didn't even know. And after about 20 people started to share their brainstorm, I was like, okay, okay, thank you for your thoughts on why the workers are few. And all of a sudden, I look up, and there's a Randar dude on the back balcony, back seat, and he's got his hand like this. Sir? You got your hand up? Yeah? Yeah? What do you want to say? Well, I think I have another reason on why the workers are few. What is it? My parents never presented being a missionary to the unreached as a career opportunity. My parents pushed me to law, engineering, counseling, nursing, medicine. But not one time growing up did my dad, who's a Christ follower, pull me aside and say, Son, I don't know if you know this or not, there's an unreached world and you would be perfect at going and reaching them. Not one time did my parents ever share about being a missionary to the unreached. And I was like, wow, we're not only not working ourselves, we're talking our kids and grandkids out of being a worker as well. It's almost like the harvest is plentiful and the workers are fewer and fewer and fewer. I'm not only not a worker, I'm trying to dissuade every kid of mine from crossing an ocean. Now imagine that. To have an impact in the marketplace as a global Christian, we need to know God's purpose. Not only do we need to know God's purpose, the Genesis 12, we need to know the harvest. Pull out a map of the world. Pull out a map of the world. In the four-year here, we have incredible agencies that are partnering with this church that can help you pull out a map. Where are their their women being trafficked? Where are their kids who need adoption? Where, Where in the world do I need to go? Where's the needy places? Don't just go to your car at, at, at the end of the service. Stop. Meet with these people. Help them. Say, open a map. Show me what, what's going on. Not only do you need to know your purpose, not only do you need to know the harvest, you also need to know your role. What is your role as a worker? Now, there's two types of, of roles as a worker. There's two types of roles. You're either a sender or a goer. Those are the two types of roles. You're either a sender or a goer. Now, because many of you are here and, and, and live in this zip code, I'm going to assume that many of you are senders, okay? If I was, if I was giving this talk in the Middle East, I'd be talking on many of you are goers, you know? Many of you are senders. Now, we know the definition of the goer, something who leaves his culture and community and goes, flies over salt water to learn a language to plant the church. That's a goer. But what's the definition of a sender? Here's the best definition of a sender. I've worked and reworked this. You can't just Google definition of a sender. Here's my best definition as a sender. It says this. A sender is someone who's aware of what God is doing in the world. They've opened the Bible, but they've opened a map. They're aware of what God's doing in the world. They're not only aware of it, Luke 10, 2, The harvest is plentiful; the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the Harvest. They're praying for. They're saying, "Lord, send out workers." But not only are they praying for, they're initiating with their coworkers, their kids, their community groups. They're always inviting. Hey, have you considered going on a short-term trip to the unreached and praying about a lifetime? Hey, have you considered going on a short-term trip and praying about a lifetime? Hey, we have this opportunity at Grace Point. We're going to take a team of ten to Morocco. Would you consider going? Hey great at this i think they're not only aware they're not only praying they're inviting behind every missionary is a sender who invited him missionaries don't just appear out of nowhere with a heart for the world they've been invited by a sender a sender is someone who's aware of what god's doing in the world they're praying for they're inviting but also once the sender once the goer gets there Now you got more work to do as a sender. How's your support team? How can I be praying for you? How's your mental health? How's your kids schooling? What do you miss? Do you need some peanut butter? I mean, you're sending. You're saying, how can I serve you? That's a sender. We need to move beyond tithing and start sending. We must move beyond tithing and start sending. You're not just an ATM for missionaries. You're way more than that. You are aware. You're studying. You're reading. You're learning. You're praying. I'm praying. Lord of the harvest. You're inviting. Who around me? Can I initiate? Can I invite? Then you're helping. That's a sender. Paul, the apostle wants to show the value of a sender. And so he does it to the church at Rome. Listen to what he does at Rome. What he does at Rome is he's, it's almost as like he's telling a story. He's like, he's like, let's pretend I'm in Spain and I'm sharing the gospel with someone from the unreached areas. Okay, Paul's like, Spain's where he wanted to go. He's like, let's pretend I'm in Spain. And then he's like backtracking. He's like, once this person in the unreached comes to Christ, what's the first domino that tipped it? What's the first domino that tipped that got, got us there? And he backtracks. And in Romans 10, he's going to ask four rhetorical questions. And the answer to all four rhetorical questions is simple. The answer to all four is the same one. You can't. That's the answer to all four. You can't. You can't. You can't. So Paul the Apostle is going to take you on a journey. He's going to start with the guy coming to Christ on the field. And he's going to backtrack. You can't. 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 Okay, Romans 10. Everyone who's called on the name of the Lord must be saved. He's like, no matter who you are, where you are, there's only one way to salvation. And then he starts his four rhetorical questions. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? You can't. You can't cry out to God unless first your heart believes there is a God. And then how can you believe in whom you've never heard? You can't. You can't believe in something you've never heard of. You first have to hear it, then you can believe. Let's backtrack more. How can they hear without someone speaking it to them? You can't. You can't hear something unless someone speaks it. How can they preach unless they're sent? You can't. Unless the sender starts the whole story, the unreached are never reached. The sender starts the story. Paul flips the script. And says, we need goers, but the sender starts the story. The sender starts the story. So the question is this afternoon is, what story do you want to start as you leave here? What story do you want to start? The sender starts the story. You're the sender. You decide what story you want to start. Who do you want to invest in, pray for, invite, recruit, and care for? What a fantastic story. When the unreached are reached, we come back to you and say, thank you for starting that story. The sender starts the story. We need senders. More money will never make a selfish person generous. More money will never make a selfish person generous. Are you sending now? Generosity does not start with a certain comma in your bank account. It doesn't. It starts now. Are you sending? Are you a good sender? Are are you just tithing and that's all you want to do we need to be good senders we need to be good senders but not only that we need goers short-term missions will never reach the unreached we've got to have people leave this zip code move to the unreached and live there for a decade or two planting churches we need goers Look at this map. Every blue dot you see on this map represents a community of 50,000 Christians. Every blue dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Christians. Every green dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Muslims. Every green dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Muslims. Every orange dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Buddhists. Every orange dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Buddhists. And every yellow dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Hindus. Every yellow dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Hindus. We need senders to start the story and we need goers. We need goers. We need senders and we need goers. So, there's an island just north of Australia called Papua New Guinea. And six young adults took themselves and their cumulative, like, 12 kids to move to this island off the coast of Australia called Papua New Guinea. There was a people group on this island by the name of the Wantakia peoples. And the Wantikeya peoples not only didn't have a Bible in their language, they had no believers, they had no church, but they didn't even have, they don't even have a written language. There's no written language. How do you translate a New Testament and then have them read it if there's no language to translate it in? And these six young adults decided that they were gonna move there, only accessible by helicopter. If the helicopter, if it can't fit on the helicopter, it doesn't get in. I was talking to him. I'm like, so do you have a couch? They're like, does a couch fit on a helicopter? I was like, no. They're like, then we don't have a couch. I was like, throw pillows. They're like, does throw pillows fit on a helicopter? I was like, yes. And he's like, then we have throw pillows. I was like, laptop. They're like, is it a laptop? I mean, I was like, sauna. And they're like, no. We, you know, I was like, oh, okay. I was just trying to grasp. Like, wow, the only thing you can take is I said they've been there for five years. This August 20th was their fifth year, and August 20th. Something happened. As we were fighting over Clorox and and, and, and paper towels, they baptized their first Wontakean believer. Nineteen more Wontakeans followed. And then BJ, the team leader, his nine-year-old daughter said, Dad, can I be baptized? And in the Wantakea River, he baptized number 21 his daughter. Think about that. They are finished with Matthew. They've got Matthew translated. Lael, one of the girls on the team, had to create. She had to go Lord of the Rings. She created a language. Uh, She created a written language for them. She took their oral language and then phonetically figured out symbols. Then they had to teach them to read. Then they said, hey, this is now the book of Matthew. They finished the book of Matthew. And BJ, the team leader, and and the team, they have about 12 more years left to complete the whole New Testament. And I was talking to BJ. I was like, BJ, how did you, uh, how did you wind up in the Wontakeahs? And he's like, well, the six of us were students at University of Arkansas. He's like, I grew up in Bentonville. And we got in a Bible study. We just learned about the, the word and the world. And then we graduated and we hit the marketplace in northwest Arkansas. But the six of us couldn't ever escape the fact that there were Bible-less peoples among the Wontakeahs. And so we just decided, if not us, who, if not now, when? And I said, BJ, I'm speaking a mile from where you, get, where you grew up. I'm speaking at Grace Point Church. I said, what would you tell the people this morning? He said, oh, Todd, just tell them this. Find out what's important to God and make it important to you. Find out what's important to God. The unreached are important to God. You being a worker in the harvest, understanding your purpose, the harvest and your role is important to God. Make that important to you. This afternoon, I invite you back. We're gonna cater Olive Garden and then from one to three, we're gonna have two more optional sessions where you can understand your role in God's global plan. I hope that you stay and you join us. It doesn't matter if you register or not. Just stay and join us. In 1792, there was a Baptist minister in London, England, by the name of William Carey. And William Carey stood in front of his congregation and he said this. He said, in India, I have heard that there are 23 languages that are the national language. And not one language has the Bible in its language. It is a six-month and ten-day boat ride from London to Calcutta. He says, but I will go and rescue them. Here's his words to his congregation. I wrote them out. He says this. William Carey looked out at his congregation in London in 1792, and he said, when I look at the world and all of its lostness, it's like we're lowering someone down a well, an abandoned mine to go exploring, to go find these lost people. And he says, I will go down to the pit If you hold the rope, Andrew Fuller stood up and said, I will hold the rope until the day I die. For the next 20 years of his life, Andrew Fuller raised money and used his affluence and influence to support Carrie and raise up other workers to be with Carrie. The first mission agency started in Andrew Fuller's living room in London, England in 1792. Andrew Fuller said, Lord, use my influence and affluence to hold the rope. After 41 years in India, William Carey had translated the Bible into the language of 300 million people. 300 million people. But there is no Carey without a fuller. There's no rescuer without a rope holder. The sender starts the story. Know your purpose, know the harvest, know your role. And so, Father, that's our prayer this morning is that we would be workers, that we would see an increase of workers to this incredible harvest. A harvest without workers, Lord, is a tragedy, and we understand that, and we want to be workers. Let us not get distracted. Let us not get consumed with other things. Use us, Lord, in our sphere, Amen.